Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Ed Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there were... There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, I, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. And he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. And then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the Son of God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. 
So uh, July 1 will be seven years that I have served Kingstown. Um, isn't that crazy? I'll begin my eighth year. And I will begin my eighth year, if you didn't know that. <laughs> it has been projected. It's happening. Um, if you didn't know, um, United Methodist Ministers are appointed every year. So like, I have, there is no guarantee that I would ever be appointed the next year. It's just it's every year we are reappointed. So, um, but I have been um, for, for the next year. Uh, and one thing I've learned in the last seven years at Kingstown is that almost every one of you feel inadequate in some way about your faith. In some little way, you have like voiced that. And especially feel inadequate in some way about the practice of your faith. But I've also learned to be pretty suspicious of anyone who doesn't feel somewhat inadequate about their faith. There are all kinds of various hierarchies. And of course you can, there's so many hierarchies in faith. Who, who is better at this than me? And of course you can keep, who can keep silent contemplation the longest or who has the most extensive knowledge of scripture or who among us has the deepest um, compassion for the poor or who among us um, knows more, most profoundly how the oppressed are oppressed. You know, there's so many ways that we can, we can set ourselves in hierarchies, but the thing that I find is most often the deepest seat of that feeling of inadequacy is how you all came to faith. How you came to faith seems to be this hierarchy of inadequacy. I hear it all the time, well, you know, well, I didn't grow up in the church as an excuse for not, or I, I have way too much baggage with the church, right, as an excuse for not, right? Right at the top of, of this hierarchy of how you came into faith is maybe the person, you know, who like traded drugs and trafficked slaves and ill-used vulnerable people and then suddenly like this transformative experience it knocks them down and it shakes them up and it brings them to their senses and triggers this personal encounter with Jesus that's at the top of the hierarchy anybody here experience God like that and then there maybe a little bit under that <laughs> is the person who grew up in faith and then like went wild for some time, denying all that they, that they had learned, pursuing every indulgence in their life, and then finally rediscovered faith later. That might be your story. And then there's all kinds of stories in between. And then right near the bottom, right, is the person who went to church a bit as a child, liked the music, married a person with a background in the church, went along, started to become helpful, ended up sticking around. And what I believe this like fabricated hierarchy tells us is how much we value drama. How much we expect God to do all the work for us and how desperately we long for a single moment in our lives of certainty that can take away all of our reservations. 
which is why the conversion of St. Paul in today's story is, is the mother of all conversion stories. Paul was the number one enemy of the early church with a mission to eradicate the movement and exterminate its adherents. But on that Damascus road, he was stunned. He's blinded by light and this voice saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, stunned by this voice and also these instructions given that told him how to find the, the way in the future. This is the conversion that we all want. It's the conversion we think is at the top. Minus one part, that's all that horrendous, all those horrendous things that happened to Paul throughout his life. We don't want that part, but this is the conversion story that we want. The one that sits at the top of whatever this fabricated hierarchy is we have of, of how we are to come to faith. Throughout the history of the church, people have looked back to the conversion of Paul and seen it as this model of how, how it's supposed to happen. Augustine heard a voice telling him to pick up a book and read it, and he did, and he was converted. John Wesley spoke of this feeling of his heart being strangely warmed, and Charles Wesley described how my chains fell off and my heart was set free and I rose and went forth to follow thee, and John Newton, saying of how he had once been lost, but now he's found. They're all riffing off of this score from the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. For what's known as revivalism, the whole of Christianity is focused down into one experience, and if you've had it, you're saved, and if you haven't, you're not which makes it easy to see where the hierarchy comes from because that leaves a whole lot of people spending most of their lives in the church waiting and hoping for such a moment and feeling inadequate until they have had such a moment. None of us, to be fair, like feeling second class, like feeling well down the hierarchy, so it's not altogether surprising that the focus of the church on conversion throughout the years has come with a whole lot of criticism. Some of the criticism you can attribute to envy, maybe, because the truth is, leaving aside Paul's more agonizing later adventures, we'd all like Jesus to talk to us in this direct, unmistakable, memorable way. But, but there is also a good deal of criticism about conversion beyond this. I can think of four. One is that conversion is all about the airport and silent about the, the journey. In other words, Christianity is about discipline and resistance and faithfulness and restoration and failures and companions and growth and learning to walk through all the weathers of life. It's not about one moment that solves and settles everything and does all the work for you. The second criticism is that conversion is a way of making faith all about me and about my experience. And while claiming to be about the dramatic action of God, it actually just puts me 
at the center of the story, and it concludes with this obsession that all that matters is my flourishing and my eternal life, which, which connects to the third criticism we've heard many times, which is more subtle, yet way more damaging, a faith that's all about my relationship with God, focused entirely on my personal experience of being the center of God's attention, almost inevitably obscures the details of what God requires for my social relationship in the world. Notoriously, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, went on holding slaves for another 20 years after his conversion and was still doing so at the moment he wrote that song, Amazing Grace. Utter focus on God can be a mask for total focus on oneself and complete disregard for, for justice in one's relationships and society more broadly. Some even go so far as to suggest that a pietist Protestantism that speaks entirely of our personal relationship with Jesus and sees morality largely in so-called personal terms such as sex and gender roles is a deliberate construction to divert attention from a more far-reaching social consequences of our faith. And yeah, it's like it's not hard to see some truth in that. And then there's the fourth criticism of conversion. Or the focus, the fourth criticism of the, of the church's focus on, on conversion. And keys into our profound desire to fit in and to please and to conform and to belong. And that criticism sees conversion as this tactic of manipulation and coercion into adopting a faith position with which you don't truly feel comfortable by those who are using religion as some form of power and who perceive somewhat rigid notions of what conformity entails. The most obvious contemporary version of this is the so-called conversion therapy, right? That word used in a destructive way, compulsion masquerading as prayer. All of which amounts to a pretty formidable case against conversion. But I want to hold on to the notion of conversion despite all of these reasons not to. Let me explain why. I think we need to let go of the obsession with it being sudden and with all the fireworks and the need to impress people with just how awful a person we used to be and how great a person God has made us now. Instead, we think we need to focus on, let's focus on, on, on these three things that are really more at the center of conversion. First is that Christianity is this priceless blessing and this profound good if we allow it to be. And through faith in what God has done, it can heal the wounds of our past. Through hope in what God will do, it can dismantle our anxiety about the future. Through the transformation of our past, through faith in our future, through hope, it can enable us to love right here in the present. To say such things isn't the clumsy or thoughtless imposition of, of this manipulative agenda of conversion. It's this 
humble sharing of deep faith. It's not shouting. You have to believe this to belong. It's saying, try it. Like, this actually works. I believe it does. The second thing we must let go of is this deep and fundamental trust in, in the notion of change. When we pray for the heart of, of Vladimir Putin, for instance, when we pray for his heart to soften, or when we pray for online communities that breed hate and sanction, like replacement and white supremacist agendas and brainwash 18-year-olds, when we pray for those to, to be closed and, and, and shut down, or when we long for a person from whom we've been estranged to get back in touch with us, or when we work for, for the climate emergency to transform the world's relationship to its planet, or when we're putting all of our eggs in the basket, we do any of these things. We put all of our eggs in this basket of change, and we're not quite sure what we actually believe happens with change. There will, there will always be some kinds of science and some kinds of religion that maintain that nothing ever changes. But change, when we do any of these things, is in the character of creation, and sometimes situations and people can change for the better. And what if that's conversion? What if believing in that is believing in conversion? What if believing that a prayer for Putin Heart to, to soften could change something. Conversion is the name for the way a person's heart and soul and actions can change for good. When they encounter the embrace of God's, God's loving arms in their life, finally, and finally the third thing we must hold on to is this conviction that at the heart of Christianity, out of the deepest hostility, the greatest good can come. Do we believe that? Out of the exile came Israel's new insight that, that the God that they thought was against them was actually something much better, a God who was for them. Out of the horror of the cross and the tomb came Christ's glorious resurrection. Out of the threatening, the threat-breathing plot plot-calculating life of Saul we read about today of Tarsus came the Apostle Paul who brought Christianity to the Gentiles and without whose work of converting the Roman world probably none of us here would be Christians. That conviction, that trust is perhaps the hardest part of Christianity to believe but the, but the most wonderful to behold that we actually believe that people can, can change and be converted. Through conversion, the Holy Spirit takes the, the worst in the world, the worst in our society, the very worst parts of ourselves, and turns them into the, the instruments for God's kingdom and channels of, of Christ's peace in the world. That's Christianity. And if conversion for us is only just about us or just a form of manipulation, or a one-time glorious encounter with God, it, we miss it all. 
We miss believing that God can convert even them, even me. And if you read the rest of Acts, in chapter 9, you see how in this story, God does that. The two people who are crucial to Paul's new discipleship are Ananias, who's, who laid hands on Paul in Damascus and Judas, and whose house in Damascus Paul eventually stays. Like, ponder the irony of those two names. Ananias if you didn't know, is the name of the most unfaithful of the early Christians who withheld his money from the fellowship of faith. There's, there's stories about him. And Judas, the name of the one who betrayed Jesus, used in this glorious history of conversion. It's not hard to believe that Luke had a chuckle when he wrote down this story. Because somehow, in those two names, it's conveyed the power of transformation that's at the heart of the Christian faith. What we have to believe in as Christians. Maybe Luke or his successor would have a chuckle if he wrote down your story today. Or perhaps the person who must receive the blessing of conversion is you today. Maybe the conversion is beginning to believe that God can change people. God can do a work of converting you and and in every little dark corner of the world that makes our hearts hurt and makes us think it is impossible or unending or ever dark. Being a Christian means believing that God can change even them and that they are worthy of that. Would you pray with me? God, on this hierarchy of feeling like we're not, <laughs> we're not enough in our faith, we, we either are just along for the ride or we've got way too much baggage with the church. Perhaps this word conversion has wounded us in some way because it's been used incorrectly um, on this hierarchy and we find ourselves then in which all of us in some way feel inadequate. What unites us is this common belief that you, God, through Jesus, change things. You don't stay off in the distance. That was a particular theology some people believed at a particular point in time, but instead you, you have the ability, you want to change People. You want to change us in a world where we are not sure anybody's opinions can change, where we are so divided, and we think it will always be that way. That's the radical nature of believing in Jesus, that we can believe people and the world 
will change. And so, God, for every way that we are outraged, for every way we have to turn off the news, or we, or we have to break relationships with people who do harm, we remember today that you, you call us to believe that even, even Paul can be converted. Even Ananias can be converted. Even Judas can be converted. That redemption can happen anywhere, anytime. And if we here today are not sure if we are worthy of conversion, we know that even you can change us. If we're, sure, we're not sure whether we can let that thing that held us, that holds on to us, that we can't seem to get rid of, that we can't seem to break, that habit, that addiction, if we think that we are beyond that, we are beyond freedom from that, we, we say we believe in conversion. We believe, God, you're doing a work in us and in the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.